Thank you for tuning into a podcast in our series, Real Life. Stay tuned for an inspirational exploration of dynamic experiences and insightful reflections on the highs, the lows, life presents. TBS Now Radio brings you engaging content no matter where you are listening to this stream. Don't touch that dial as you journey with our presenter and guest today. Remember, this is a real-life podcast stream coming to you from TBS Now Radio. Stay with us as we uncover faith-based principles and practical ways to make a success of life. Thank you for having me on. Um, it's a privilege and a honor to to be fellowshipping with you. And who can refuse the great family when he calls upon you? Oh, thank you very much for your very, very kind words. So let's get straight into the interview. Please tell my audience about your early life. When were you born? And what was family life like? Well, it's very interesting. I... I was reflecting a few months ago and I discovered that I've spent half of my life in UK and half of my life in Nigeria where I was born. I mean specifically I was born in Ibadan at your hospital and um, so I grew up in Lagos. My parents, I was born to um, a very great man, Rufus Oshualali or Emakinde, um, of blessed memory. And um, my parents separated very early, and I spent the first few years of my life living with my mom in Ibadan. Um, subsequently, my dad remarried, and um, I think about eight, I went to join him in Lagos. And um, my stepmother, um, she's wonderful. And unusually, when people ask me, out of your two mothers, my biological mother and my sperm mother, who do you like the most? Even my, my biological mother knows is my stepmom. So I had a very good upbringing. I was one of those very lucky ones who grew up in a house that was mothered by a stepmom and I, I blossomed. And so I went to primary school in Lagos and my secondary school was split between Government College Ibadan and Frederick Government College Dubuyu. So I spent half of my um, academic secondary school years in both schools and I have very great memories. Um, I have four siblings, um, three, three girls and a boy from my father's marriage and they are my real, or they are the closer of my um, siblings. 
my mom also remarried and I have three stepbrothers. So all in all, um, hope that answers your question. So, so that makes you a very, very special uh, member of the family. Yes, being the firstborn. Yes. Yes. Unique on father's side and unique on mother's side. Yes. As well. Interestingly, you said about your stepmother that um, you really blossomed um, uh, under her care. It's um, modern life is a little bit um, different from the past because the traditional um, view was that mother and father had to be together, live together for you to have the very best of, of life. Would you say that based on your own experience that you can actually have a fulfilled, a joyful and an exciting life even when your parents are not together? I mean, interesting question in the sense that um, the family unit consists of the father and the mother um, and if either of them are not present then there must be a substitute so in my case i had a very traditional dad um, who was a father to the core um, he extolled the values of fatherhood uh, which i think i picked up from him although he wasn't he had separated from my biological mother but before he brought me into his house again he already had a mother figure for me who was, that's why i was my stepmom so i actually grew up in the family unit so i had a mother and I had a father. And I didn't know how special my stepmother was until I went into secondary school where I met other people who had stepmothers. And my experience was totally different from theirs. So my stepmother would come and visit me. She would drive all day from Lagos to Ibadan or the Bolu to come and visit me, bring me stuff. And other people were like, that's not usual. And then by the time I went into university, and she was still doing the same thing. And I met other people who had that different experiences of their stepmother. That was when I knew how unique she was, you know. So I think back to your question, we have different kind of family units now in the world. Um, some of them are not traditional. So as a general practitioner, I see all sorts of tribes. I've seen mother, father, absent dad, absent mom. I've seen two fathers, sharing the role of father and mother. I've seen two mothers sharing the role of father, uh, father and mother. I've seen people who have grown up in um, foster care. I've seen people who have had different childhoods. And there are, are, are different outcomes to different family units. But if you ask my opinion, I think if you are very blessed, you should grow up or anybody should try to make their children to grow up in a unit where the father and the mother are there to provide um, those values that only both of them can bring. Thank you very much. Um, I like the way you segued into um, the, your uh, medical experience. So I'm going to ask you uh, the next question on uh, your career and your medical profession. How did you get into medicine as a career and as a profession? And what obstacles did you face? How did you overcome them? I mean, getting into medicine, if you grew up in Nigeria, oh, I mean, it was sort of a predetermined course in the sense that if you were brilliant, 
And I was fortunate to be one of the brilliant students in class. You were either going to study medicine or you are going to do law and engineering. That was what was laid out for you when we were growing up. And secondly, I think so I fitted into that mold. Uh, my dad also wanted me to do medicine and it was a very great influence on me. But in terms of my personality and my, and my, my own drive, um, <laughs> I, I messed up a bit of when I was growing up. So I, before my father got married again, I lived with an uncle. And my aunt used to tell me that I was, I was growing up, and I remember vividly, I used to kill lizards and rats, and I would dissect them. So I, I, I would kill them, you know, we had a gamma lizard and things, so I would stone oh, them. Catch the I would catch the lizards. And then I would, I would, she used to tell me that I would actually dissect them. I wanted to see their inside. And so that bit of inquisitiveness into medicine had probably got on there. Part of my toys when I was growing up was the doctor said so looking back i think i was destined to be a doctor <laughs> fantastic so um what obstacles did you face um getting into medicine or becoming the professional proficient doctor that you are today i think if i'm going to answer that question we should do it in two parts in nigeria the only obstacle you, you, you had was academic as a Nigerian who grew up in Nigeria. And so I had to do jam twice. So I did lower six after I finished my um, secondary school, GCSE. I did quite well, GCSE, but I think I didn't, I didn't like many of us, we thought jam was a easy peasy, but it got us by surprise. So I had to do lower six and I eventually got into medical school. So that was the first obstacle. And that was maybe a, a minor obstacle. Medical school was was a, was the greatest time of my life. I met a lot of boys who are now men, and we are still very close. Um, and it was the best best time I grew up. Um, unfortunately, some of us didn't go to school as we ought to have gone to school. Uh, we were not born again then. So it was the wilder part of our lives, but God looked after us. And I met a lot of people who are now pastors, who are now uh, professors, who are doing quite well. And we bonded well. So Nigeria was good in terms of med school. Um, coming over to UK, that was when you can say you started facing the obstacle. Um, Nigeria, the world was your oyster. You. You wanted to do something, you put your mind to it, you could achieve it. Coming to UK is slightly different because here is it. You went, I came in, I came in, I think I was 26. I'm going to be 53 soon. So, got married, came in, and you didn't really have your family support, and you had to start doing things. So, you had to do an exam called PLAB. That on its own was challenging. I had to do it twice. My wife was already here, so she was already working as a doctor. Um, Did she breeze through club? Oh, I mean, you have to ask her, but I, I, I can't remember now. Like, I just can't remember, but because she even had it more difficult because she came before me, before she could even save money to do club, she had to work doing phlebotomy, just doing all, all kinds of things to gather money together. In those days, it was more difficult. So phlebotomy is uh, blood 
yeah, collecting blood, collecting you know, collecting blood and doing, just trying to put your head together to, to gather some funds to pay for club. Then after you pass club, then before you now start getting into medical training. And so I passed the club eventually and um, I wanted to be a pediatrician. And I fortunately, God opened the path for me. I got a very a training program, which at that time was very strange for somebody coming from Africa to get a training program. I got a pediatric training program in Royal London Hospital, um, and I finished my pediatric training. But while I was doing the training, I wanted to be a neonatologist. I love intensive care, but I kept on doing it, and I thought I wasn't enjoying it anymore. That I just lost the passion, and um, I knew there was something not quite right. And so after I finished, and I love a challenge, so I finished the training, passed my academic degree, MRCP, CH, and I said, okay, so I've got the degree. The feeling of not being satisfied wasn't because I wasn't passing the exam. There was something else beyond me, not, you know. And I had a word with my trainer at the time, a consultant, and I said, listen, I like you as a person, but if what I'm looking at is to be a consultant the way you are, I don't want to be a consultant. I'm just not, I can't see myself doing what you are doing. And so he said, what am I going to do? He said, we are going to do. He said, no, I should, I should go for the training then. I said, no. It, actually, that feeling had been going on the, after I finished medical school. Because I had a word with my dad. I said, I wanted to leave medicine. And the whole family came on to me. I said, you can't leave medicine after spending six years. So in a way, I thought I was going to leave medicine earlier on anyway. And I had this period in my life when I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And that was when I found an MBA. You know, so the obstacles are not generally the academic obstacles, it's more of the institutionalized aspect of trying to grow up within the system. For somebody like me who who was um, who is ambitious, who wants to get to the top of the game. And I felt at the time there was you to get there. There were there were things you had to do, fights you had to fight, and I just wasn't ready for it. Okay, so now let's let's hone in on the fight. Yeah, because there are certain attributes that you've got to have that guarantees success in any adventure, in any venture. So, what would you say are those characteristics, those attributes? that you needed or that anybody needs in order to be successful against surmountable or insurmountable challenges? I mean, the first thing is to have a clearly defined goal. Some people call it vision. What do you want to be? Um, so that was, and I think for me at the time, the clarity of what I wanted to achieve was being blurred. It was blurry and I couldn't see myself as a consultant neonatologist. And so the as I said, the challenge was what do I want to become? Because all my life I wanted to be a doctor. That was easy peasy. I wanted to be a neonatologist. So I passed and then I needed to go for another training. And the bit of it was I wasn't sure that becoming a neonatologist was the vision I saw. And it was painful because I didn't have another vision of what I wanted to be in life. It was painful because all my life, I set a goal, you chase it, you achieve it. And so for the first time, when this thing was getting bloody, it was because I didn't really know what I wanted to do anymore. 
And so the first thing you need there, you, anybody needs to achieve is that clarity of purpose. And then you have to pursue it. And in pursuit, you have to believe, you have to be realistic that you can do it. You must know your capability. Can I do it? Yes. Do I have the capability to do it? Yes. Then the next thing is to pursue it. You have to believe in yourself. And wisdom from God. Because there are certain things that even when you get there, you need some divine wisdom in how to approach things. So there are certain times when it's not what you do, it has to do with the timing. So if you do it a week early, it might not be the best. A week later might be the best time for you to submit your application. And there are so many factors that are beyond your own control. And that's why the Bible says the race is not for the swift, it's not for, yeah, the, the, for, the, for the strong. Okay. But life we're going to go to a break. Okay. We're going to go to a break now. When we come back, we're going to look a little bit more. We're going to drill a bit more into mentorship and the impact it had on your um, growth, success, and development. Um, you are listening to Real Life with Femi Bioy. My guest today is Pastor Kaede Oremakide. Don't change that dial. We'll soon be back. You are tuned in to a radio stream from TVS Now with Femi Ibiwaya. Inspirational, engaging, uplifting radio. Don't, don't touch that dial. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So welcome back to Real Life with Femi Ibiwaya. My guest today is Pastor Karadi Oremakinde. Pastor Karadi, welcome back to the second segment. Thank you, Femi. So just before the break, um, I was... We were talking about development, challenges, obstacles along your career path. Now, I want to ask you about um, those who have been mentors or coaches. Who has been your mentor? And what values did you admire in those mentors? Okay. Um, my life is split into, into three main parts. My family and moral life my spiritual life and possibly the business and um, financial bit of life. I think in terms of morality and family life, my father has been the greatest influence in my life. And um, unfortunately, he died at a stage where I wished that I could have gotten a bit more out of him than I got. Um, he set goals. He made us realize that um, you should uh, remember the son of whom you had, the house which you have come from, the value system that he instilled in you, the drive for excellence, that to be the best you can be, and um, to set yourself goals and challenges, and not to be afraid to fail, you know. So he didn't do it, he did it in a very interesting way. He was always there but at the same time it gave you space to breathe um thankfully i was quite brilliant so we didn't we didn't really have much fight in the sense of you know, you're growing up in a typical african dad so he was there he guided us instilled his value system in us uh, he was a church he wasn't a believer at the time he wasn't truly a church man but at least he took us to church he set values in us with his life, he wasn't a dubious person, 
but at the same time, wasn't a spiritual person like, oh, he was church all the time, praying all the time. Um, so, you, in effect, it wasn't a, a helicopter, because they talk about helicopter parents, um, overbearing, too involved, too um, dictatorial, too um, instructional. No, no, my daddy wasn't like that. My dad was somebody who set, who, who, who monitored you and made sure that you were on the right path and just guided you. Um, very interesting to compare him to the Holy Spirit or, or God the Father. There at the background watching you grow, develop, and when you are going astray, oh boy, no, 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 let's, let's go back. I don't agree with that kind of plan. And hopefully I think I've grown up to be like him with my own children too. So that's one. But in terms of the spiritual life, I can't but mention Bishop Oedepo. Many people might not know him. He's the, he's the um, lead pastor, senior bishop of Living Faith Church. And um, he made me understand how you balance spirituality, wisdom, and life. So his, his, his message about, about Christianity and the way he lived his life, actually, the way he lives his life, made me realize that you can have it all. You can be a good pastor, you can be a good um, parent, you can have good children, you can have money, you can have a good marriage. There is almost no part of his life that I have seen that he comes short. And that's, that's really, really something that maybe I just... I just love about him. You know, you've heard of many people who are big time, big people, but they have, there's a comma somewhere. And not a small comma, a major comma. Family life, if you rich, family life is poor. His, poor, his man is good family life, but he's, he's rich. He hasn't, so, I mean, they are, but with him, when you look at all aspects, his children, his children after him, because one of the greatest things you can leave as a legacy is your children. And when you look at his children, all his children are doing very well. His marriage is, you know. So I, I like him. And if he was looking at, if he was hearing me now, I would be saying, Father, thank you. Because when my dad died, funny enough, he did not know, but he took over my other father role. So he became a surrogate. He became a surrogate dad to me. But he, he, he doesn't know. He, I'm, I can say I'm close to him, but he took up an empty, an absent dad role. But because I was a pastor under him, I don't think he realized it because we didn't. We never. I never talked about that to to Papa Bishop. As we, you know, we never. I never spoke to him about my dad, but somehow he took over that role. So those are my two mentors, um, really. Um, and then in terms of life, Miles Monroe is somebody I I I aspire to become one day. So on my journey of life, I'm still going on. I like the way he does it. So he doesn't have a church ministry per se what is impacting lives is impacting businesses and if, if i want to, if i say when i grow up who would i like to be like uh, what would i like to become i would like to be my small is the person that i really I like really... i like the way you talk about him as if he is still present and um, for those who don't know um Monroe deceased a few years ago yeah. on his way um to a conference yeah. that he was um uh, he, had, he had set up. Mm -hmm. um, so, are you deliberately referring to him in the present tense, or this is just um, uh, a slip up? Well, because he's a mentor, um, and he's at the back of my mind. You know, you, I'm a doctor. I've achieved what I want to achieve as a doctor. 
you, you know, I've, I've been God has been faithful to me. I've got to to the peak of my career in my chosen career. I'm a GP. I'm a partner. But it's as if there is still another part of me that has not emerged that could emerge, and it's that bit where my Monroe becomes the the ideal person I will really want to become. But have I started the journey? I, I, I'm not sure. But that's that's the next goal. Did you ever meet him in real life? Have a conversation with him? No, I never. I'm, I, I I saw him from afar. I, I, I've been in one or two conferences where he ministered, but I've always seen him from afar. Um, but at that time, I was a younger person, both in terms of Christianity and life. I was still trying to become a doctor and set goals. But somehow he has impacted me with his messages and how he, I think maybe because I, I think he has an MBA and there's a way he, 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 he preaches that makes the reality of Christianity, business, life, just the things I like. Let's know. talk about your MBA. Let's yeah. talk about your MBA. Um, how does a doctor um, move from medicine and general practice to business administration. <laughs> it seems like, is it a misfit or is it deliberately because it makes you a better practice director? No, it's very interesting because I told you that when I finished my pediatrics training and I went to meet my consultant, that yes, I finished my training, but I didn't want to be a consultant pediatrician. I didn't want to be a neonatologist. And I said that I was a bit, what I wanted to become was a bit blurry to me. And so in my searching, I decided I was going to take a year out of life just to find out what I wanted to become. And in my research, I stumbled upon the MBA that it was a good tool to have, maybe not for now, but for the future. Sort of, I felt God telling me that you needed this tool. It was a tool and I didn't know how, how it was like a sword, a man going to war, how beneficial it was going to be, but he said, look, you need it. So it's, it's a tool. And at the time, it has nothing to, I didn't know I was going to be a GP. I didn't even know what I wanted, but I felt led to do an MBA. And not only that, I felt led to do a very good MBA. So I started looking at INSEAD, London Business School, Cranfield, Harvard, you won't believe and I did research, and Harvard was telling me to bring $60,000 per, 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 per year for two years. So I thought, come, I, I don't have that kind of money at that time. You know, so eventually I settled for Cranfield. And another year. So mark this. I said my medical school school days were fantastic. My MBA year too was another time that I really, really enjoyed, and it made me reflect. And after finishing the MBA, I thought I would never do medicine again. God told me, now you are ready to go back to medicine. And then general practice. And I thought, no, 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 I must be hearing things. And God said, go back to medicine as a GP. And since then, Granada, I mean, I've, I've not had any chance to regret. So the MBA was something that came because I was searching for direction. And it was God sent. Not, I, I never thought I was going to do an MBA. But looking back, it's one of the best tools that I have now. Fantastic. What steps have you taken to keep your family safe in the pandemic? Oh, as a doctor. Okay, let me ask another question as well. <laughs> okay, okay. And what do you think the NHS should do to prepare better for an unprecedented health emergency like COVID-19? So, 
preparation for your family and then what the country should do to avoid being overrun by another pandemic or something like it. I think there is a there was a video that was going out of Bill Gates talking about about the pandemic. The if, next before the pandemic came. Okay. And I think Bill Gates there are some conspiracy choice about Bill Gates, you know, but let's let's leave that for aside. Let's look at what he said. So some years ago, people have predicted the pandemic. These are not evil people. These are not for Christians. These are not antichrist. These are just scientists who have seen that the pandemic is coming. No, fact, no, no, sorry. I can't. They modeled the pandemic, didn't they? No, they no, modeled no, it. They modeled the pandemic. In fact, a film came out. People have also. I mean, are you saying? Are you saying that they predicted it, or they just assumed that it was going to that something like that could happen? Okay, let me let me say this. COVID. Because I'm going to ask you about um, co COVID, conspiracy theories later. Co COVID this year is going to go, but there would be another pandemic. Uh -huh. So before COVID, we had. SARS COVID one, we had we have Mars, so pandemics have been coming. They've been coming even in terms of bubonic plague. So it's not when, but it's not if a pandemic is coming, but when. So back to the preparation of the NHS, we knew pandemic is coming. We knew it was just when, and so NHS, like most or most organizations in the world, were taken by surprise. Number one by. Okay, we we heard about the the, the a, 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 we had about a virus in Wuhan in China. I never knew where Wuhan was until I think it was December 2019 when we started hearing I was seeing pictures and films of people dropping dead on the road, and we thought what's going on. And so, the pandemic, the illness started in China. Was the NHS prepared for the gravity of what was coming, or was the world prepared? No. There was no nation in the world that was prepared for the severity of what we witnessed in 2020. May we not see that again. Amen. We are talking about believers now. That's a, that's a language I have used. But is another pandemic coming in our lifetime? Possibly, Femi. Possibly. That's scary. It, it is scary. But we've had mass one. We've had, we've had COVID one. We've had mass one. Not, at, not on the scale of this pandemic, but it's, it came... And after, after COVID goes in some form, maybe next year or the year after, are we going to have another pandemic? It's very likely, sir. So that's the scary bit. Now, what can NHS do? So we need to build in resilience. We need to build in resilience. We need to build in capacity planning. Now, majority of the doctors or the majority of the 40% uh, of the NHS staff comes from um, black and ethnic minority. So those are things that they need to put in place with equipment, you know. So when the pandemic broke out, we didn't have enough PPEs, personal protective equipment. We were worried about ventilating capacity in, in the NHS. There were there were there were issues with um, uh, apart from face masks, just the general PPEs. So so there there are quite a few things. For instance, I never thought as a doctor that I'll be able to work at home but home working now uh, today i worked at home i saw patient i was i was dealing with patient my morning surgery was done from home my patients didn't know because now we have a default model 
So it's the capacity planning, the resilience planning, and the 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 funding. Thank God for UK. We are we are we are going back into the into the into our reserves and we're even borrowing money. The things like following, you know, so there are quite a lot of things. But will this pandemic with with another pandemic come back again? Oh, sir, it certainly will. I hope not as bad as this or in our lifetime. But we can certainly say, and as a pastor and as a Christian, the Bible says when there are rumors of wars and pestilences. So it is going to come. With with pestilences are scriptural. Just like farming, a pestilence is a disease that kills a large number of people within a short time. A contagious disease that kills a large number of people within a short time. It is scriptural for us to have pestilences, just like we have famine, just like we have wars. These are prophetic things in the Bible. Sorry for my secular audience. We are talking... No need to apologize. Okay. It's real life. It's real life. So yeah. we are talking about things that um, even the, even science has predicted it. So somebody like Bill Gates talking about it was talking from scientific, but even scripturally it's there. Okay, how how do we as ordinary people now outside the NHS mm. prepare our families to survive the next pandemic? What should we be doing? I think let, let me let me pause for a minute and 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 give you a life story. So there was a time I was on the underground. I was going from my house to central London. And I met a group of Chinese about three, four years ago. So the underground is a train it's station. The train station, the same system within UK. Within the UK. And I was, I was underground. I was in the, I was one of the, one of the um, stations. And I saw this Chinese, Japanese, very far east, tourists, and they were all wearing face masks. This was about three, four, five years ago, and so I'd been seeing them repeatedly over the years wearing face masks and i said you guys you are wearing face masks in uk I, I know in where you are coming from there i used to think that they were they were they were bizarre it was a bizarre behavior maybe because of the pollution that we saw on, on our tvs from china but actually those guys were ahead of us they were already putting face masks they were coming to our country in uk wearing face masks already ready for it whether they had experienced a form of contagious disease part in China that or wherever they came from that they didn't tell us. But I reflected and said, I'd seen these people. So they were prepared. Right. So in terms of myself, right now, to prepare, one needs to have face masks. Mm. That is going to be a normal part of our, our so we're going our, to be wearing face masks for the for the foreseeable future. for the first in my opinion we'll be wearing face masks for the foreseeable future even if you look even if it go even if um covid goes a friend of mine who's a professor in chicago president who was telling me recently i was on the phone to him and he said that in his hospital common flu the common flu that we see yearly in uk has really fallen and the reason being that it coincided with wearing face mask. Mm. So the outbreak of common flu in, the, in, in his hospital really fell dramatically, significantly, because of face mask. Mm. So face mask could become something that I think could be part of our accessory, just like a tie, mm. just like wearing a wristwatch. A face mask would be normal for us now. And um, I think sanitizing our hands, becoming more conscious of people, people, you know, um, um, as a doctor, I've had patients come into my office just coughing and sneezing without actually respecting my space. 
I think things like that will probably become a thing of the past because we'll be able to tell patients, patients will be more, more educated not to come into your pub, into your space and cough and splutter just because they want to tell you that they are they really they are really coughing and they just you know if um, expose you unnecessarily. So and then vaccinations hopefully will be more that we can come about that later. About okay, let's talk about vaccinations since you uh, <laughs> <laughs> since you've now. So what is the issue with people and conspiracy theorists about vaccines, and how much has this been influenced by the deep state theories from USA, UK, and some other parts of the world? I think as the pandemic evolved. People have tried to procure and produce answers to certain things that they were not sure of. So we have some, um, depending on which part of the world you are, so there are certain opinion leaders. In the West, in UK, scientists, doctors, people at the forefront of scientific research were the, were the people who were talking about an imagined disease that even the brightest of science minds did not understand. So doctors who, respiratory doctors, infectious disease consultants, were studying a disease, although we know of coronaviruses, it had, it had, it had, it, 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 it's been in existence for quite a long time. But this particular one and the pattern, we are seeing it for the first time. We are beginning to understand it. So people were beginning to, based on their knowledge, Almost modeling, trying to model how it will behave. Modeling what we don't know. We are seeing it for the first time. We don't know this. And based on that, people started to give their own opinion. So we had scientific... Now, within the normal scientific community, there will be one or two dissidents who will also have, rightly so, his own, his or own opinion. This is the beauty of medicine. So somebody comes to see me as a, as a, as a patient and I can say, look, I think you've got X disease. That's my opinion, based on my training. That's why I have, I have a doctor in front of my name. The same person can send that doctor. Second opinion. Second opinion. And in fact, this plays out more in in major major things like psychiatry, you know, where people say, well, I think this man has a schizophrenic illness. I say, no, 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 no. He's just having... So, based on that... So he's having a mental... He's just having a mental... <laughs> so, depending on which psychiatrist sees And... And and we cannot be we, people can but the doctors is is your opinion that's why you've got this doctor in front of your name and you got the certificate that's what you train for and people have to respect that opinion so even within the conventional medical opinion we still have people who we can call dissidents who will propose their own thing now as the disease was coming up people began to we began to understand it more but if you ask us now can we tell you the long-term effects of this disease. Nobody can. You can only postulate because we haven't seen it before. So that's one. So in UK, Western world, you have opinion leaders, scientists. Then you have the politicians who are doing their own thing. Obviously because of they have to manage resources. They have to be opposition leaders. So some of them have to say the negative things just to discredit the government. That's their job. You know, you, you have to fight the government and people come out with set different things. So in the West, it was interesting. Fast forward to Africa. Now in Africa, as well, this, this is bizarre. You find the opinion leaders being, strangely enough, pastors 
who are not scientists. Talking about a disease that even the sciences don't know. And then they are bringing spirituality to comment on a disease. Well, is that spirituality or ignorance? Oh, he, 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 if we really have to say it, in my opinion, it is ignorance. That, that's my opinion. It so is ignorance. To define ignorance as they don't really know what they're talking they about. They don't know what they're talking about. They, they are not they're qualified. Not they are not authorities to speak on it. You can talk about the word of God and you can expand on the word of God, but you don't have the scientific understanding to postulate for something you don't know. So every, sometimes you, you, there are one, one or two of them, when they are talking as a scientist man, you think this man is talking from his backside. He's just spewing nonsense. And then somebody has tried to link it to 5G. For Christ's sake, what are you to, how can you link what is emerging to Christ? And somebody comes and says, oh, that we are wearing face masks because face masks is a sign of some Buddhism. And, you know, the, do you know, Femi, that wearing face masks, actually, there was a picture of, I think it was in 1927 or nine. that was Spanish flu. People were wearing face masks. People, countries were quarantined. So, so locking the, Lockdown, quarantine, staying at home. It's not. This is not the first time we are going to do it. It won't be the last time. We are in face masks. It's not now. But some of these leaders, um, spiritual leaders, pastors are saying that oh, they have a there's something agenda against the church, something that affects every facet of society. It affects the church. It affects the mosque. It affects the Jews. It affects the the Jews, the Jews the in nice over here. It affects well. nice clubs. It affects barbers, barber, everything. And somebody says it's, it's, it's designed against the church. Thank you very much, um, Pastor Cardi. We're going to take another break. We're really getting into the subject matter now. Wherever you are listening, you're listening to Pastor Doctor Cardi or Emakinde talking about real life um, in the world today. Whatever you do, please come back. Don't miss the next segment. It's going to be very interesting. You are tuned in to a radio stream from TBS Now with Femi Ibiwaya. Inspirational, engaging, uplifting radio. Don't touch that dial. Welcome back to Real Life with Femi Bio. And my guest today is Pastor Dr. Kaede or Emakinde. Uh, before the break, we were talking about um, conspiracy theories, we we're talking about vaccines, and we we're talking about how the country and individuals prepare to cope with another pandemic. Because certainly, this is not going to be the last ever. How do you think? that we should remember the sacrifice and the sacrifices of your colleagues in the NHS who have suffered so much and also by extension some of the key workers in society who have been on the front line and have paid a significant price uh, for our well-being as a country. Thank you Femi. I think at this time we, we should probably pause just to reflect and remember 
our colleagues, as you've said, who have lost their lives. Um, I think there are, there are people who, um, unfortunately, the system failed um, because in the early part of the pandemic, um, some people didn't have enough protective um, equipment um, and other people, because of their the kind of work they did, they were unfortunately involved, um, whether knowingly or unknowingly, in fighting the pandemic. Our hearts go, to, go out to them. We remember their families and uh, we pray that God Almighty will strengthen them. But as a nation, what can we do? How can we um, honor the, the legacy and their sacrifices? I think we can do it maybe by, in my own opinion, we could have maybe an NHS ceremony award um, for them. That's, an, that's, a, that's a, a thought. Or we could have a public holiday, you know, for the NHS workers as a recognition of their sacrifices. I think trying to increase salaries and such things might not, I, I personally don't think that might be a way forward. Others might think so. These are just opinions. It's not, there, is no, there are no right or wrong answers. And I think more importantly, and this is where, because the majority of people who lost their lives, I think I saw a program recently, about 90% of those who lost their lives in the NHS were from black and ethnic minority. And so, Asian. yes, black and, black and ethnic Asian and Asians. So we really have to look at the, this on a case-by-case basis. There are some who are working in the NHS and the money they are, they are earning, they are using it to support people back in their homes. So there are families dependent on their income. There are some doctors who retired, who came out of retirement to join the workforce. There are some who, whose dependents are missing that, that person because they were the major breadwinners. So financially, we have to look at it on a case-by-case case basis to say those who lost their lives, let's let the government look at them on a case-by-case case basis. I'm aware that there is, there is some, there are some, I mean, there's a form of financial compensation for any doctor that dies in active service. And it was it 50,000 pounds or 50, something like that? Yes, yeah, something like that. So I'm aware, and I think that is an ongoing thing for any doctor. I'm not sure whether nurses, any key workers, key workers. What about the porters, ambulance drivers, paramedics? Do they have this kind of um, package of those? I, I don't know. So if that is not in place, government should look into it and, and do something. Um, also, there is a disproportionate um, areas of uh, policies that the government might want to look at. Health inequalities. So majority of black and ethnic workers, they live in poor accommodation. That, that contributes. They, 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 there is um, housing, you know, job opportunities. So there, there are quite a few things that, well, not a few, a lot of things that make health inequalities in the BMA group to be, to, to make them prone to having died of COVID. Even doctors, 
So the doctor is not really a poor person. But then, more black and ethnic doctors died than the whites. So it's not about even uh, financial um, incentive now. There are quite a few factors that go on. And I think maybe one of the legacy... Do you think they were more sold out to the Hippocratic Oath than the other doctors? I don't think so. I think if the government... Maybe, maybe a good legacy might be the government to actually constitute a body to actually look into what happened and come out with robust recommendation because another pandemic might come and it is based on what we have learned now that we can use to defend to, to protect ourselves in the future so good recommendation by the government a good working committee to look at what happened case by case assessment of what or of those who have died and possibly a national holiday for remembrance. Thank you very much. So, Captain Tom Moore really proved to be, oh, Sir Captain, the mate, yes. Sir Captain Tom Moore, really proved to be a rallying point during the last year, raising a nearly, nearly 40 million pounds for the NHS charities together. Do you think some of the funds should be used to increase the outcomes for the black, Asian, and minority ethnic community? Who have been disproportionately affected by COVID nineteen? Uh, we want to recognize Captain Tom again um, for his um, sacrifice and his legacy, and making us to see what is possible when you set your heart to it. So our hearts go out. Uh, I think he went at ninety eight, ninety nine, hundred, hundred. You know, so um, what an inspiring young man. So, but what are the things that we can learn from him? Yeah, fine, he has been able to raise 32 million pounds. But the 32 million pounds he raised wasn't for any community per se. It was just because he wanted to raise it for his charity. I wouldn't subscribe to the notion that it should be used for DMA in terms of COVID. I think the issues with DMA and the COVID-19, the government, like we said in the last question, the government should look at it in a, a robustly, holistic, holistically, yeah. you know, and um, we shouldn't. Um, Captain Moore's thing, the, the funds he raised, I'm sure he raised it for his charity. Can we put money into into BMAE? What about people who have um, who have a form of disability? The autistic society that crosses across all all races. So there are, there are quite a few mental things. Health, mental health, mind. Yeah, yeah. It crosses across all races. So I think we, sh we shouldn't isolate BMAE, but BMAE on its own, the government have to look at it. Okay. Mm. Okay. Thank you very much. So the Royal Academy of uh, Engineering launched Project Care to support engineering innovation to fight COVID-19 in Africa. In the first year of the launch, female entrepreneurs led by five to three. How can more COVID-19 mitigation initiatives be encouraged from providers who can provide context-based designs and solutions? Wow. Um, thank you for the loaded question. Um, when I... My gun is empty. Your gun is empty. It, it's... Uh, I think the question talks about how maybe non-medics 
particularly people with innovative solutions, can help bring about solutions to the healthcare industry in, if, Africa. in, Af in Africa. Good. So I think people have the innovativeness, they have the solutions, but they, they, they don't know what the problems are. And so it is bringing problems to solution providers. And if I don't know your problem, I can't provide the solution. So in short, how do we bring our problems in Africa within the healthcare society vis-a-vis -vis COVID to the platform where people who have the innovative um, engineering or whatever, uh, maybe technological um, platform to solve our problems. And so I think there has to be a form of partnership between the workers within the healthcare sector and this. So a form of, in my own opinion, maybe either a... Public, a private partnership. Private partnership. I think that's, that, that should be the next behind the scene. I think the first thing is just for ideas, problems to be... To cross-fertilization. Cross right? Problems should come. These are my problems. I, I want something to... Okay, I don't have... Um, say, for instance, in Africa, I don't have electricity to do this. Okay? That's the problem. My problem is I don't have electricity. So how can we generate electricity within a particular area? So, okay, somebody can come in and bring maybe solar-powered ventilators. You understand? Or, like I read somewhere, there was a little film I saw about we using drones to to to... to to supply um, blood banks in somewhere in South Africa. They were using drones to drop yes, blood fantastic. banks from the country, so from the major hospital in the city. They were using drones to go and deliver blood for people who need blood transfusion in the jungle. And I thought, wow. So there has, there has been some innovation within that. And so, but the problem has to be brought to the, to the platform where it can be addressed. And so maybe a, maybe a think tank cross factor of ideas should be the first thing, and then after that, public part, public partnership. The, the Royal Academy of Engineering um, mm. has this African Prize that Good. is run every year, and um, the top prize is twenty five thousand pounds. Wow! Um, and then there are three runner-up prizes of ten thousand pounds each. Do you think that this is enough of an incentive? to actually encourage um, innovators because there are issues with water, um, good, clean drinking water in many parts of, of Africa. There are problems around, um, like you said, um, energy generation. There are issues around even providing um, fertilizers for crop growth mm -hmm. and to increase yields and to increase harvests and so on. Uh, there are also problems around um, in, in Nigeria, for instance, with the animal husbandry, where um, um, cattle uh, are encroaching on people's farms, and a, a very primi primitive nomadic um, activity is going on, which is destroying people's li livelihoods. So, um, do you feel that there should be a greater incentive, financial incentive, um, behind these initiatives to actually bring 
the problem solvers to the fore? Because Africans know what their problems are. Yeah, I think uh, 25,000 pounds is a lot of money in any currency. And if somebody were to sit down to, to design an innovative solution, even in UK, and you give him 25,000 pounds for his brain power, I think that's a good incentive. But we should be careful that the brain power working is what you are paying 25,000 pounds for. Actually, if you design a solution, the person who designed it, apart from that 25,000, also has to have, <laughs> because business will come from that innovation. That, that innovation may become a multi-billion pound industry. So, apart from the 25,000, the, now what's the word now? The, the organizational infrastructural support, the training, the training. development. But more importantly, the, is it patent? Yeah, the patent. The patent has to come into the name of this person so that he or she, the brain power, has been protected to, to, uh, what's the word now? Enjoy the, to enjoy the fruits of their labor. Their labor. Thank you. Yes. So, so, so there must be not only the the initial win, but the safeguards should be in place. And if many people see, if I design something and it comes to this platform. Not only will I get the £10,000 second, second price, which is good for now, but more importantly, I can benefit out of the future um, dividends of my invention, of my innovation. I think that is the second part that we have to, we have to, we have to, we have to instill. The money, the first part is, is good, but the second part is what, I'm, what, I, what I think we should safeguard. And the Katu, Katu you mentioned Katu Femi, the simplicity of Katu is that we have a solution that has been in existence even in biblical times. Ranching. Just get a ranch. It's a simple solution. But the powers to be in Nigeria and the politics of Nigeria seem to make it that it's not an ideal solution. I mean, we don't, people, there, there are different parts of the world where nomadic religion and nomadic lifestyle have been practiced in the past. Majority of them have been covered by cattle ranching. It, it is a, it is a, I mean, we read this in certain geography and when we're, but why are we still doing that in the country when, when ranching can sort the problem out? So it's a government problem, not, 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 it's a, it's a government problem. We will need more voices of reason. Yes. We will need to keep speaking into this issue so that we'll see positive change. Yeah. The pandemic shows that nationality has an active benefit in positive outcomes for emerging out of extreme restrictive lockdowns. So mm. what I mean by that is if you live in a developed country, some of the uh, initiatives that they take to safeguard the populace helps us to emerge quicker. Yeah. On the flip side, those who don't take those initiatives or who are not able to properly implement and provide those directives have negative outcomes, higher negative outcomes. How can health professionals channel or develop effective public-private partnerships to help the diaspora 
negotiate early access to innovations in medicines and vaccines on an equivalent basis as the wealthy nations. Okay, so two things. Let, let me try and define the question in my understanding. Yes. I think taking stance for the Western world, even within the Western, so we have the Western world and we have developing countries like Nigeria, for instance, Africa. So within the Western countries, we have countries like UK and USA who have been at the forefront of procuring vaccines. Now, if you look at UK and USA and you compare it to Australia, both developed countries, but Australia had a more successful story than us in terms of lockdown because their society, their, their, their citizens, they were more, um, they, they obeyed the instruction of the government. And so sit at, at home for them meant sit at home. And so they locked their borders on time. Unlike in the UK, where our prime minister will give an instruction and everybody will be questioning the prime minister. And majority, well, not majority of people, there were still a lot of people who never obeyed the lockdown and made the pandemic to spread even the more. So even within the uh, developing countries, we are not, um, the, the citizens of the developing countries have not really obeyed. But now come to the issue of vaccines, which is the second part as compared to Africa. The world is a global place. That's the main story, sir. The world is a global place. So this is where I need to be your brother's keeper comes in. If as UK, we are going, maybe by September, we'll have maybe 80% of the population will have vaccinated. So we have our own herd immunity, which is good. But then we'll be locked in an island to go to Africa, to go to Barbados, to, to travel will be a problem. Unless we make all those other countries safe by giving them vaccines. So it is, it is in our own best interest, not only to vaccinate ourselves, Share. But to share it, and that's the that's the that's the major message in this vaccine, in this pandemic. I have to be safe for myself. I have to protect myself. I have to protect my friends and family. We have to protect the community and the nation at large. The same thing on the national basis. The prime minister has to protect UK as a as a as a nation. We have to protect Europe and the world at large. And that is from an individual level to a national level. The vaccines have to get to the rest of the world. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. They are imagining resistance strains now from Nigeria, from South Africa, from Brazil. Those areas also have to be stopped for us in UK to enjoy the benefit that we have. Ungozi Okonjo Iweala has just become the first female director general at the World Trade Organization. What do you think should be her priority as far as getting the vaccines out to Africa and other third world nations? Yes. Um, well, Africa is not a nation. Africa is a continent. So I'll just use that in broad. I mean, broad. let's 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 first of all congratulate the lady. She's she's done excellently, and I think she's a good choice. Not just because I'm a Nigerian. But because <laughs> actually, like actually, <laughs> to become the first lady and then the first African to to get to that role is, is inspirational. 
and I think it goes out to what we've been saying that if you set your mind to things and you pursue it you eventually get to where you want to go so thumbs up for her big 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 plus come on Nigeria right in terms of I think the first thing she said one of the first things she said as soon as she got in was to address I think it was our prime minister um, a veiled um, remark was made that yes, thank you for vaccinating UK, but you still have to vaccinate the rest of the world. <laughs> she, that was the first thing she said. And I think our role as an advocate will, will continue to, to, to say the same thing. Just she has to keep advocating, you know, and being, being, being the um, director, she, we've got to get the prices of the vaccine to be affordable to countries. Interestingly, you know, when I was growing up in med school, we had some books that were specifically, there are medical books that we got in Africa at a reduced rate. So for those of us who were privileged to be able to come to UK then, you could buy a book here for £25. But then you get it at an equivalent of maybe £6 in Nigeria because of the differential rate. So the same thing with these vaccines. You might be selling a, a, a vial of vaccine, I think right now in UK, for a short about £25. For the two, sorry, for the two shots. That's roughly how, how much the government is, is paying GPs to give. Roughly about £25 for the two vaccines. So in Nigeria or in Africa, that price has to go down, even if it has to come down to a dollar, to ensure that people get it. Because the, the big farmer, they will make their money usually through UK, US, but then they have to now ensure that the rest of the, vac the vaccines gets to Africa. And Ngozi Okoji and other people in that kind of power, they have to keep advocating. They have to keep banging it in the heads of the, of the, of the Western world builders that you are not safe if Africa is not safe, if Asia is not safe, if Brazil is not safe, you are not safe. You are just in a temporary delu uh, delusion if, if that is what you are going to do. Thank you very much, um... Um, Dr. K. We're going to go to another break and um, when we come back, we'll come back for the last lap of the interview. It's been very, very illuminating. Um, if you haven't listened to the first part, I would encourage you um, to try and um, get the podcasts um, downloaded. Um, wherever you are, please, please, don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. Thank you for tuning into a podcast in our series, Real Life. Stay tuned for an inspirational exploration of dynamic experiences and insightful reflections on the highs, the lows life presents. TBS Now Radio brings you engaging content no matter where you are listening to this stream. Don't touch that dial as you journey with our presenter and guest today. Remember, this is a real-life podcast stream coming to you from TBS Now Radio. Stay with us as we uncover faith-based principles and practical ways to make a success of life. back to Real Life with Femi Bioy. My guest today has been a breath of fresh air. Um, Pastor Kayode Oremakinde is a fantastic medical doctor, lead um, practitioner in a very large 
GP practice in London. Dr. Carley, how do you relax? I don't. I think that's the that's the real thing. Um, many people play golf. Others do very funny things, you know, all kinds of things. I don't know how to relax. And I will tell you something. When I'm sleeping, my wife tells me that I talk in my sleep. So I'm still chatting in my sleep. And then one day she told me that I was laughing in my sleep. And then the one that gave me the jiggles the most was that she said I was singing in my sleep. So here I am, I sleeping, and I'm still active. My brain is still active. And so if you, if you really ask me, what, what do I enjoy doing in terms of maybe not relaxing, I enjoy my watching Manchester United play. Isn't that United. relaxation in itself? In a way, not with Manchester United nowadays. Maybe <laughs> when Alex Ferguson was our coach. Is football like a religion to you? <laughs> I love football. But, you know, it, it really, um, I remember one of my, one of my practice managers asking me, what, what do you do to relax? And she said, because he said that you are talking about church, you are talking about work, or you are doing something. And so, it's only when I when I travel out of the country that I've left everything behind, and in a far place, you know, I'm far from UK, I'm just far away. And previously, I used to go on holiday with my laptop so I could contact work, you know. But now I've developed a team, I trust them. So when I go on holiday now, that is the only time I shut down. But to come home and say I'm relaxing, I, I, it's not a language that that I'm always doing something. There's always something going on. Um, so that's me. I'm burning in that sense. Okay, if you had a bucket list, what would you put on it? Yes, I would love to... I like traveling. So I want to go to the safari. Um, I would love to, to visit Kenya and um, watch the safari. So that's, that's, that's one thing. And there are also two parts, two places I would like to go. I want to see the Great Wall of China. I've been privileged to, to see the pyramids of Egypt, maybe not on a close day, but at least I've been to Egypt and I've seen that. So, And I would love to go to Peru to visit the Inca, Inca temple and the ancient civilization. Um, so those, those three things I would love to do. But because I love traveling, I like visiting places that have scenery, places where you can just enjoy the view. Um, I've been privileged to go somewhere in Jamaica called Ocean's View. It's a beauty, it's the best place where I've had, where I've ever eaten. We had, the, we had lunch, we had dinner in this beautiful setting. You could see the oceans for as far as you can see and you could see the ships going. And so idyllic, picturesque view. It's not. It's, it's, it's worth the money. So traveling is something I like to do. I would also like to possibly drive a Formula One car. You know, so I would love to go and see a Formula One car. You know, just to have the privilege of driving one and you know, <laughs> just enjoy. The you trip. need you need to be very small to get into it. It's very interesting because we went to Abu Dhabi once and uh, we went into this. They're in the Ferrari. There's a G-Force. Formula One, I think the only one in the world, and it will give you an idea of how fast those things are. And I really enjoy. I thought, okay, that's the that we've I've enjoyed the force of the F1, but I would love to drive the at least being an F1 car.
you know so um that's it okay so let's um imagine that you are 16 all over again how would you live your life 16 all over again yeah with the benefits of hindsight i think 16 not 21 not 30 16 i wouldn't change anything about my 16. i think children should be children adults should be adults at 16 i was i was i was in a state in my life as a teenager where i was growing up i was becoming myself looking back now i don't think i want to grow up within this environment or the environment now that we have at the time the, the road was the, the country was safe in nigeria you you could you could go out and develop yourself you you could develop your humanity your manners they were they were not i mean compared to now now there are so many noises so many value systems that are coming out that are confusing in my opinion those growing up now so for my 16, oh, I love my 16, man. I enjoyed it. Maybe with my father giving me some some grief and directing me when I was going out of out of doing things I shouldn't be doing. But really, I enjoyed 16. Maybe older, 21. Maybe I might say, maybe I have to maybe invest early. You know, I got to meet God Christ about 24, 25. Uh, maybe earlier on, maybe because before I start working, you know, I wish I'd, I'd done some things in terms of investment earlier on. Um, no, I, I've had a pretty Talk about life. meeting Christ when you were 24? Well, 25, yeah. Okay. 24. So, what was that experience like? How did you become a Christian? Um, quite, quite surreal. Because um, I just got married, and um, my I just landed in UK, and there were not. I was going through an experience. Maybe I was I was actually seeking God, but I didn't know I was seeking God. So life as it was wasn't as exciting as I thought it was. I was just married. I should be enjoying myself, and I felt okay. I was in a strange land. I needed some soft, some form of um, um, anchor. But I didn't know what it was. And so this day, myself and my wife went to church. We had been going to church, you know, just to try to solidify the marriage and get our bearing right. And having come from a Christian family, in as much as my dad wasn't very religious, but I always knew God. Anyway, I went into church this day, Pastor Agui Iruku, Jesus as was preaching, and he preached a message that made sense. It just made sense. And I thought, God is so when they give the altar call, I told him, They are calling me. God is calling me. And he said, What are you talking about? They are calling me. And so I went out. And it was very interesting because when I went out to give my life, as I lay there, I later found out that there were people in my medical school who knew me, who were cry, who started crying. This guy gave his life. Wow. God is real. And they were all shedding tears of joy for me that look at this man. He's now born again. So that was, it was an experience that I could remember the message in a way because Pastor Agu was wearing military clothes and he was talking about, the message was about the army of Christ 
I could still remember, I could still remember the message, and he came in wearing military gear to the altar, and that was when I gave my life. And um, Jesus Christ was almost, he was, he was talking to me, you know, and everything made sense. It was just a clarity of this is what I needed at this time in my life. And God has been good since then. Do you want to give a shout out to, to anyone, your colleagues, family members, anybody important to you? I mean, shout out will probably be to if, if my, my wife. My wife has been, you know, she's been with me all these years. She's tolerated me. Tell us a bit more about her. <laughs> I mean, everybody has to have a wife that God has given to you. I think every man is a bit unique and different. And we all need somebody who can really be our helpmate. Somebody that uh, sort of can help you, who knows you, who, 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 who guides you from the back, who supports you, who can say no, yes, and so I've been very lucky that I've found my own and I thank God for her and um, if and I think she's got to be strong to live with me so she's a very strong strong person uh, she should live with me you've got to be strong so she's very very strong in her own way and um, I'm thankful to her so a big shout for her we've been able to navigate the, the system together uh, very well and very highly highly intelligent and very highly qualified person I married. So you can't you can't tell her that oh I'm a doctor, she's a doctor. Oh I'm a GP, she's a GP. Oh I'm this, she's a consultant. So you can't really bully her on any level. You know, you just got to got to meet her at at at, at your level. You know, and so that's 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 really good. So for her, my mom on a personal level during this pandemic, my mother went into hospital because of COVID in Nigeria. So big shout to my oh, she, family. She's much, much better. We thank God, you know. So much better. My family in Nigeria and um, my friends, you know, who have been around, you know, without, you, you need friends. I, I will use this opportunity to talk about five people you need in your life. You need a good pastor. You need a good accountant. You need a good lawyer. They can deal with your legal case. Accountants can deal with your accounting case. Your pastor can deal with your um, spiritual case. You need a good doctor. So a doctor with your health. And the fifth person you need is a good friend. A friend that sticks like a brother that will tell you, you are, you are not right. No, 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 I agree with you. No, you, you messed up big time. Somebody who can tell you. So you need those five. And if you are, if you are very blessed to have those five in your life, then you've made it. So I, I want to thank God for anybody who has been in that situation for me, who have represented that position in one way or the other. I thank God. Uh, yeah. Just as we're coming to the end of the interview, I just need to um, explain to everyone that this is real life. And real life means that we are not in a studio. We are out there where real life happens. You may have heard a few noises in the background, there's building work going on, um, striving for excellence is one of um, Pastor K's things, so there's always something going on in the house whenever I've been, I've been here, a privilege to, to, to come on. Uh, so, finally, um, do you have any final thoughts as we wrap up? 
Um, final thoughts. Um, two things um, to anybody out there. COVID is real. It's not an, a fragment of our imagination as scientists. Um, I have had the vaccine. My wife has had the vaccine. My family has had the vaccine. We got the vaccine to protect ourselves, to protect our friends, to protect our patients, to protect the community at large and the country at large. So if you are offered the vaccine, please go for the vaccine. That's the first thing. Second thing has to do with Christians and their faith in accessing medical care. I'm a pastor. If you give me a few minutes, I will preach. Because here, man has two parts. There is the inner man and the outer man. The inner man, the Bible says, may God grant you the strength to be strengthened in your inner man. The inner man is the spirit man. God made man as a spirit. So having the inner man and the outer man, which is the physical, you know, First Peter 3, 3 to 4 talks about the inner man. He says, let the women be not be adorned with the outer plating of hair, but with the with adorning the inner man, the meek and the and they had the humble spirit. spirit, which in the sight of God is a great reward. So he's talking about two, 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 two people, the inner man and the outer man. Now, Jesus Christ, the scriptures actually tell us that the needs of the inner man and the outer man, although they are the same, they, they are met differently. A man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. So the outer man needs bread to feed. The food for the outer man is bread. But the word of God is the food for the inner man. Exercises. There is spiritual exercises and then there is natural exercises. The Bible says profane and old Bibles will refuse. But rather exercise thyself into godliness. So talking about godliness as a form of spiritual exercise. But we do physical exercise for the physical man. So exercises are good for both the physical and the physical man and the spiritual man. So also... Jesus Christ said something. He said, we should, the e that is sick needs a physician and not he that is well. He said, I have come to call sinners. So sinners there was referring to the state of the spirit man. They are sinners. Anybody who is sick spiritually is a sinner. He needs the physician, the great physician. But he's also talking about the physical man being sick. He said, is there not a physician here? Is there not a bomb in Gilead? Jer um, Jer um, Jeremiah 8.22. So what he was talking about is that a physical man also needs a physician. So my job as a physician is to deal with the physical man, not necessarily at the expense of the spirit man. But what people have taught us is that as a physical man, everything answers to the spirit man. But we know that scriptures don't say that. Elisha, the powerful Elisha in the Bible, the man who they dropped a dead man into his sepulchre and the dead man woke up. You know what killed Elisha? Sickness. Sickness. So with all his anointing, he still died of sickness. Now, in the Bible, we had Lazarus. Lazarus, Jesus loved Lazarus. 
that Jesus loves you doesn't mean you won't die. Lazarus was sick and he died, despite the fact that he was beside Jesus. So, to my audience today, the fact that you are a spirit-born Christian does not exist you from being sick. If you are sick, go visit your doctor. Go and visit your doctor. There are so many medical advances in um, technology, advances in medical technology that we are enjoying, that we should enjoy. You don't need anybody to tell you that you shouldn't. Many drugs. You know, we've conquered several diseases. COVID is a new pestilence. We've had pestilences before. Penicillin. Penicillin was what we used to conquer bubonic plague. The cure for COVID is still coming. By God's grace, God will grant science the cure for COVID. We've had the vaccine, but the cure is coming. Amen. Nothing to do with spirituality. The person who is going to find the cure may even be an unbeliever. The people who have found this COVID vaccine, they don't necessarily believe in the God we believe. They may be Muslims, they may be atheists, but the cure for humanity is coming through medicine. So as I round up, anybody who has any cure, if you are diabetic, go see your doctor, take medicine. If you need glasses, wear glasses. If you need anything, go and be, be good enough to approach your doctor. And then on top of it, believe in God. But don't miss out on medical treatment at the exclusion and say because you are a faith person, you won't go through medicine. The Lord bless you. Thank you so much, Pastor Dr. Kaede or Remakide. You've been listening to Real Life with Femi Biwaye. My guest has been fantastic today. Um, please, please let's take seriously the advice that has been given to us and may you live a long fruitful and healthy life and until next time see you soon Thank you for listening to this radio stream from TBS Now Radio. We are based in United Kingdom and are a community dedicated to publishing wholesome content for individuals, professionals, and business people. Join us daily for inspirational presentations, divine insights, and real-life interview podcasts. It has been a joy and privilege to have had you drop into the stream with us today. We affirm the belief that every individual is gifted and possesses the ability to make a contribution to the well-being of others. Please join us daily from 6.30 a.m. GMT for the word, music, real-life interviews, and inspirational content. We look forward to providing your inspirational kickstart to your day tomorrow. We are streaming again from the same place at 6.30 a.m. GMT tomorrow. Have a good night from your presentation crew here at TBS Now Radio.